Okay, let's um, say a word of prayer before we get started. Father, we just come before you and we thank you for this day and for all these women who have braved the weather today and for uh, your covering over us. And we pray that you would use these words to encourage all of us. We thank you for First Peter and for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read our passage. It's pretty short. First Peter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that those who judged in the flesh in the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and glad, be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let, none of your suffer, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, did everyone get a handout? All right. So, this is my most theological book that I have. No, I'm just kidding. Um, this is a book that my mama read me and that I read my kids, and it's really funny. Um, so the Berenstain Bears have a book called The Bike Lesson, where Papa Bear is trying to teach the little son how to ride a bike. Papa always teaches him the opposite of what he could actually do, riding into traffic, downhill too, too fast, wobbling and crashing. The little son is confused, and the father, embarrassed, says, Now, son, this is what you should not do. Now let this be a lesson to you. So... Um, Peter is doing the same thing in his letter to exiles. Do not do what I do. Do not do what I did. There was a time when Peter said, all others may fall away, but not me. Later, Peter teaches, be watchful, but he couldn't even watch for one hour. He said, rejoice when you share in Christ's sufferings. And isn't he one of the ones that fled? With bold words here in chapter four, Peter is speaking from experience. 
Remember when Jesus told Peter he would die and be raised on the third day? And Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had lived much of his life armed with his own way of thinking instead of Christ's way of thinking. He learned a lot, and he humbly writes this letter telling the exiles and us what we should and should not do. So, Westerners like us living in 2020 in the Bible Belt of America do not have the same types of examples of persecution as the exiles of 1 Peter, nor do we face the same fiery trials as believers in China or Iran, but sometimes we are persecuted. In the future, we may be persecuted. So I want to tell you a personal story and then look at some practical advice we draw from God's word that will help us if and when we are ever faced with any of these types of sufferings. So in 2007, my family had happy lives in West Texas. We had a good marriage. We had three young children. I was busy homeschooling. My husband, Galley, had a good job as the VP of lending in a financial institution that was three blocks from our house. And we were near my mom and my dad, my sister, my brother-in-law, and my baby nephew. We worked with university students through our church. And looking back, we were young and we were fairly arrogant. And we really didn't feel the need to be connected to the body of believers that were over the age of 22. We just really enjoyed hanging out with college kids and ministering to them. And we certainly were not expecting any fiery trials. So my dad was in the car business for 40 plus years. At this time, most of the cars that he sold were financed at the same institution where my husband worked with full approval from the board and the CEO, and my sister's husband worked as a loan officer there. My husband began having hard times at work. He couldn't figure out why he was having to do his job, plus the job of, it seemed like, everyone else. <clears throat> there was major tension at work, leading to a hatred of work. And many months passed, and we became very unhappy. So my husband discovered the reason for his stressful workload a coworker in high in command was having an affair with the CEO. <clears throat> there was a ripple effect to many others, including their own spouses and kids, and my husband walked in on them during work hours, but they felt no remorse. They took multiple trips together, they skipped work. My husband wondered what to do, so he kept doing his job and theirs and putting out fires. He would come home very frazzled, more and more stressed, and he was miserable. So everyone working there was dependent on him to keep things running. Um, the board came and asked for a meeting with him, and they asked if this affair of the boss and coworker was true, and so he was in a tough position. And he was told that his job would be protected if he spilled everything that he knew. My husband decided to tell the truth, and he was not protected. So when the boss man found out, all hell broke loose. <clears throat> the boss and his entourage began to sabotage my husband. He tried multiple times to smear his name. He tried to make Galley so miserable that he would quit. And several times, I remember I had to distract the children while Daddy was sobbing. <clears throat> so uh, my husband was in shambles. I was afraid he was going to have a heart attack, for real. He couldn't sleep. We were afraid. We were even physically afraid, and it was so weird. We were physically afraid that something was going to happen to us because all of our peace was replaced by fear, anxiety, and uncertainty. Um, and then there seemed to be hope. There was an annual meeting where members would get to vote on the, on the boss to continue either being a CEO or to bring in another. 
So do people even know about this corruption? Words seemed to be getting out, and I was glad the truth was being told to some degree. So I remember sitting at my desk at home praying and crying and asking the Lord to do something. Um, and I remember playing, praying a prayer kind of like this. This isn't right, God. We are your people, and the world is treating us like this. They don't know who they're messing with. Like, we're the children of the king of kings. Um, I'm going to boldly and specifically pray that, um, you know, specific things here, because this, these people are messing with the love of my life, and they're bringing chaos into our lives because of their ugly sin, and that's not fair. So, Lord, I pray that this boss man would get ousted, and I pray for a new guy to come in and replace him, and, I'm, and it needs to be a man with integrity, and I'm just going to go ahead and pray that that would be my husband. Because he's a good man, and he doesn't deserve this, and we don't deserve this. So that was my prayer. So as I was studying God's word to gain insight, I remember the Lord giving me this scripture on that day. So when Katie told me that she wanted me to do this passage, I was like, oh, great. I get to talk about that. (laughs) Um, So it said judgment must begin with the family of God. And I did not like reading that at all. I didn't like it. I didn't understand it. I was confused. I was definitely surprised as if something strange had happened to us. So my husband walked around this financial institution seven times like Jericho one morning. And he prayed that all wrongs would become right and that all would be well again. And I remember going to the giant meeting with hundreds of people. When the time came to vote, everyone sang the man's praises. I remember this man's smiling face on the stage tall and glowing with delight, and he was feeling invincible because he was, and I hated him, and I hated everybody who associated with him, and we went home feeling very hopeless and helpless, so um, with absolute power, the next thing on his agenda was to get revenge on my family, so he did research on how he could get my husband and my father-in-law in big trouble and made it look like as though they were doing something unethical and unlawful in the car business. And then he no longer allowed my father to finance customers through his institution, which basically put my dad out of a job. And my husband fought hard, but it was time to quit. And my brother-in-law quit. So my entire family was all out of work at the same time. (laughs) So several months later, we left our beloved home. We left my mom, my dad, my sister. We left our church and our school and our friends. And we made plans to move to the Metroplex. So Galley miraculously found a job here, but was later told that a CEO from West Texas had put out word to everyone in the industry not to hire him. So that's why I'm here, and that's why I moved here 12 years ago. You may have had similar experiences or possibly hard times way worse than this one. There are so many things we could have done differently in our situation. Like Peter, we didn't get it right, but God has been gracious and is working it out for good. So in light of this example, I want to talk about the things we should not do according to 1 Peter 4. So I'm kind of a teacher. You've got blanks on your paper. So um, do not be surprised. When I was in the middle of this circumstance, I admit I was baffled. How could this even happen? I heard a story that a Russian woman came to Tim Keller after he preached a sermon over this topic, and she said something along the lines of, why are, the, why are Americans always expecting everything to go well all the time? And when then one bad thing falls apart, 
when one bad thing happens, they fall apart. She said, I've grown up expecting everything to be hard. And then when something good or easy happens, I'm pleasantly surprised. So face it, we Americans are hardwired against pain. We just are. Um, we do anything to avoid it, to self-protect, but we need to learn to believe God, to expect suffering, and to even lean into it. We are indeed God's people. We are children of the King. Yet Jesus said we will have trouble, and he said, take heart, I have overcome the world. I should know not to be surprised by trial, being a student of God's word. Hebrews 11 even talks about believers getting mocked, flogged, and sawn in two. Some popular distorted teachings today say that once we receive Christ, get ready for bliss and solutions to all earthly problems. Um, sometimes people say Christ suffered in our place, so there's no need for any more suffering if one can just muster up faith to believe. That's not true. According to 1 Peter 4, that view is very false. Another is teaching that says pray harder and believe so that all unpleasant trials will go away. Or believe with all your heart and all of your earthly desires will be granted every time. Scripture never promises that life will be grand on this side of heaven. Or what about the idea that tells us we have to just believe that it's not hard and then it won't be hard? I haven't quite figured that one out yet. Let's be honest. It's hard and God knows that it's hard. So Jesus, the God-man, prayed that the cup would pass from him, not as he willed, but as God willed. And he sweat blood. He couldn't have prayed any harder or in any better way. It was God's will for Jesus to go to the cross. And thankfully, the Father accomplished his great work of salvation. Yes, we are to pray about everything, casting our cares on him because he cares for us, as we'll see next week in chapter 5. But when our prayers don't produce the outcome we're expecting, we are to entrust ourselves to him. And as Karen told us a couple of weeks ago, stay curious to what the Father is up to. Another reason we are not to be surprised by suffering is the world is broken. Just because we're in the family of the King of Kings does not mean we always get royal treatment here on earth. We live in the now and the not yet. For those who reject God, common grace here on earth is the closest they're ever going to get to heaven. It's terrifying but true. Yet for people who trust Jesus, fiery trials are the closest thing we will ever be to hell. Ecclesiastes 8.14 says, There is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. We can't explain why wicked people prosper, and often righteous people receive unfair treatment. Gally and I were guilty of being so obsessed with trying to figure this out. Samuel Rutherford, Rutherford said, Let us be faithful and care for our own part which is to do and suffer for him, and lay Christ's part on himself and leave it there. Duties are ours, events are the Lord's. <clears throat> Hebrews 12 says, endure hardship as discipline, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and ladies, we are deeply, deeply loved. Also, don't be surprised because judgment has to start with God's family first. For it is time for judgment to be, begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what is the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? God's judgment for the Christian is always discipline. It's never punitive. It is never punishment to teach us a lesson. It is always the loving father caring enough to gently discipline his child. It is always redemptive. 
But for people who have not trusted in the blood of his son Jesus, it's a different story. John Piper clarifies, The point is that God's judgment is moving through the earth. The church does not escape. When the fire of judgment burns the church, it is a testing, proving, purifying fire. When it burns the world, it either awakens or destroys. Believers pass through the testing fire of God's judgment, not because he hates us, but because he loves us and wills our purity. So this quote is on your paper. It says, God hates sin so much and loves his children so much that he will, he will spare us no pain to rid us of what he hates. What a loving father we serve who is relentless against sin in order to fight for our ultimate good. So, don't be surprised when he refines us through trial. There is actually cause for rejoicing. So, the second blank on your paper is, don't live for human passions. The first verse of 1 Peter 4 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Instead of arming myself with Jesus' thinking of choosing suffering over self, I often put on a full load of armor ready to fight against anything that could cause me any discomfort. (laughs) So this trial made me suffer. So how did I cease from sin? Well, one example is that I now have the understanding of the importance of plugging into a body of believers. Back then, we ministered to college students, but we didn't feel much need to plug in with older people in the church. Yet we found ourselves in the trenches of life, surprised, ashamed, jobless, and we had very few people who knew our troubles. We went through this mostly alone. There is a beautiful reason why we are instructed to live life with other believers. Because of this suffering, we are determined to never let this happen again. So Peter gives us a list of sins in this chapter, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. But it could also mean living for what we imagine will make us happy and not considering what would be most glorifying to the kingdom of God. I mean, how should I know what would make me ultimately and eternally happy? I need to trust my Heavenly Father with that. An example would be when I prayed 12 years ago that my husband would become CEO. My thinking was so small, and Jesus was so gracious in interceding for me. It's like Jesus said, Father, Jill prayed this prayer and asked for X, Y, Z, but what she meant to ask for (laughs) was this. So Romans 8 says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For what we do, what we do not know, what sorry. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes with groans that words cannot express. So Jesus took my selfish prayer and He offered it to the Father, who who in turn said, "No, my child, I have something so much better," which was a, a more flexible job with better pay in a wonderful city near other family and a church family like we have never known. Because I cannot imagine life without all of you friends. Not to mention all of the discipline and truth that he so patiently taught us along the way, which is the gift that keeps on giving. So, by the way, um, when we go through trials such as these, there is no guarantee that we get the sunshine and rainbows on this side of heaven. We might not have received the better job, the better pay. We might have had to move somewhere outside of Texas, far, far away from all family. And Galley could have gotten banned from the industry forever. Even then, God in his infinite love and providence would still be a good God. And he still would be worthy of praise. He's so worth it. 
So I didn't realize that I was living for human passions. All I could see was this predicament we were in. But honestly, I wanted it to turn out for my earthly benefit. God's kingdom is so much better than what we can invent for ourselves. <clears throat> so number three is do not be ashamed. Doriani says, in a hostile pagan environment, a reproach can be proof that God's spirit shapes us so completely that our life dis disturbs the pagan who responds by reviling. Opposition might therefore be proof that God is so differentiating us from the culture that we can't be ignored. We were mortified when the boss convinced people that we were doing unethical business. <clears throat> we were ashamed. People were believing all of this false information about my husband, my father, my brother-in-law, and it was really hard for me to go to Bible study because the world was too small. Um, we wanted no one to know about this terrible trial we were going through. But God had not left us. He was with us. The spirit of glory rests on believers who suffer for the name of Jesus. Matthew Henry describes this by saying, The spirit is here to comfort you, fortify you, carry you through all, bring you off gloriously, and prepare and seal you for eternal glory. This glorious spirit resides upon you. Actually, it says resideth upon you, <laughs> dwelleth in you, supporteth you. But the Spirit is pleased with you, and it, is this not an unspeakable privilege? What are we to do instead of being surprised and ashamed? We are to rejoice. We are to rejoice not in the particular suffering, but in the pain that demonstrates our participation in that suffering. Rejoicing when we don't feel like it is an example of a sacrifice of praise. Elizabeth shared that in our group, and I love that. So no servant is greater than his master. We are to be like Christ even in suffering. We are to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds because the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work that it would produce us to be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And when we get to rejoice here, then we get to rejoice in glory. So we must think bigger. But we, must, we may be asking, all that talk about rejoicing in glory is great. But what about practical invite, advice when we just stepped right in the middle of it, right? Peter gives us that too. We are to entrust our souls to our faithful creator and continue to do good. I believe that Peter uses the word creator here for a reason. I think that he wants us to remember how well God knows each one of us. He knows our trials. He knows our deal. He knows our struggles. He knows how painful they are and he hates it. Every hair on our heads are numbered, and it is all for God's glorious purpose. I am a big whiner. <laughs> I love to ask, why, Lord, why? But Paul says in Colossians 1, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. Wait, I didn't think there was anything lacking in Christ's work of salvation. So why does, what does Paul mean here? How can Paul or any of us fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? So Piper says that Christ's death and resurrection lack nothing except for one thing, a personal presentation by Christ himself to the nations of the world and all the people in our lives. God's answer to this lack is to call believers to present Christ's afflictions to the world. There is a purpose. <clears throat> so... What did I learn from this passage of 1 Peter 4 alongside this ugly, life-altering trial? That God is good, 
that he is with me, that his grace is sufficient, that he loves me enough to discipline me. No one can ever snatch me out of his hand. So don't be surprised. Don't live for self. Don't be ashamed. A great deal of my experience that I shared with you today is what you should not do. So let this be a lesson to you. It's like this big. Um, A lot of you know me, and there's a good chance that you will hear me say these words today and then turn around tomorrow and be shocked and appalled at a much less fiery trial tomorrow when my kid brings home a failing grade or when the transmission goes out on my car, which I think it's about to. Um, I often still think that I deserve an easy road. I, like Peter, have failed in so many of these areas, yet every time I study these truths or go through something hard, Christ changes me just a little bit. And all I can say is thanks be to God that he promises to finish what he started in me, and he's doing the same for you. Life may get crazy. We could suffer big losses on this side of heaven, but praise God that we get to say that we belong to him. Where else are we going to go? He has the words of eternal life. Thank you.